Welcome to NTD Evening News. Our top story tonight, a sixth grader killed and five others wounded. What we know about the high school shooting in Iowa so far, police say there is no more threat to the community. The Iranian president quickly blamed Israel after the pair of bombs that killed almost 100 people in Iran. But was it Israel? Someone has now claimed responsibility for the deadly attack. Jason Perry has the latest updates. A group of voters now seeking to remove former President Trump from the primary ballot in Illinois. How are similar challenges playing out and will Trump appear on the Colorado ballot to be certified tomorrow? Iris Tao reports. Nikki Haley is trusting New Hampshire voters to pull her out of third place. Her campaign says Trump is terrified of her momentum there. Arlene Richards unpacks those arguments and finds out why Governor Ron DeSantis is soft on Trump. A fierce battle taking shape over border and government funding. Some Republicans now giving President Biden an ultimatum. Melina Weiskup has more on what they're demanding. Jeffrey Epstein-related court documents and evidence unsealed with Prince Andrew and former President Bill Clinton back in the headlines. Jeremy Sandberg has more on the first unredacted release. This is NTD Evening News. Live from our NTD Global Headquarters in New York City. Here is Tiffany Meyer. Good evening and thank you for joining us tonight. We open with another tragedy. A child was killed and five others were injured in a shooting at a high school in Perry, Iowa this morning. The first reports about an active shooter at Perry High School came around 7.40 a.m. local time. That was before school started and it's the first day of school following the winter break. Law enforcement arrived within seven minutes. Once inside, they located multiple individuals with gunshot wounds. Officers immediately attempted to locate the source of the threat and quickly found what appeared to be the shooter with a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Police said that luckily, very few students or faculty were in the building when the shooting took place. They confirmed there is no further threat to the community. The school is about 25 miles northwest of Des Moines. The shooter has been identified as 17-year-old Dylan Butler a student at Perry High School. Butler was armed with a pump action shotgun and a small caliber handgun. Butler also made a number of social media posts in and around the time of the shooting. Law enforcement said they also found a rudimentary explosive device at the scene. Authorities rendered it safe. Butler appeared to have acted alone. There were no words on his motive. The victim killed was a sixth grade student at Perry Middle School. Those wounded included four students and one school administrator. They are being treated at local hospitals. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds reacted to the shooting. This senseless tragedy has shaken our entire state to the core. And I want this community to know that every Iowan stands with you. It's impossible to understand why anything like this happens. But again, I want you to know that we'll work tirelessly to get the answers so that we can prevent it from happening again. The investigation into the shooting is ongoing. Perry Elementary School canceled classes for Friday. 
Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy canceled a scheduled campaign event in the town and offered his prayers. Someone has now claimed responsibility for the devastating bomb attack in Iran, which killed almost 100 people. Meanwhile, things are getting more tense across Israel's border with Lebanon. This comes after a reported Israeli strike near Beirut that killed a Hamas leader. NTD's Jason Perry has the details. Just hours after the terrorist attack in Iran on Wednesday that killed almost 100 people, Iranian President Ibrahim Raisi blamed Israel. And he also vowed for revenge against Israel for the attack. But on Thursday, the Islamic State, a Sunni terrorist group also known as ISIS-K, claimed responsibility for the deadly attack in the predominantly Shiite country of Iran. In a statement posted on Telegram, the Islamic State said that two of their Islamic State members detonated their explosive belts in the crowd in apparent suicide bombings. The terrorist group has a bit of history with Iran as the Islamic State previously set off a pair of bombs in 2017 targeting Iran's parliament. National Security Spokesperson John Kirby said this on Thursday about Wednesday's attack. We have seen uh, the public credit now that ISIS-K uh, has taken for the attack uh, in Iran. We're uh, certainly in no position to, to doubt that, uh, that, uh, that claim by, by ISIS-K. I, I haven't seen anything that, uh, that indicates there's a direct link to what's going on in Gaza and with uh, the attack in, in Iran um, on the anniversary of Soleimani's death. Meanwhile, tensions have been escalating across Israel's northern border with Lebanon after an apparent Israeli strike near Beirut that killed a Hamas leader. On Thursday, Israel Defense Forces reported several launches coming from Lebanese territory. And in response, the IDF struck at the source of the launches and also struck a launch post and an observation post. This Israeli woman's home is just one mile away from Israel's border with Lebanon. She's currently living in a hotel in a safer area, but she decided to visit her home and give this message. It's, it's scary, I must say. And we need to be sure that we're safe in order to come and live here again in our homes. So this is uh, our request from our government, from our army. Please make us safe. And on Wednesday, Israel's chief of the general staff met with troops on the northern border to discuss the situation. Based on my impressions, we are in a very high state of readiness in the north. I think our readiness is at its peak. And he also mentioned the apparent lapse in Israeli security that allowed the October 7th attacks to happen. We are going to have more soldiers on the borders for at least the next year, and we will reach something much stronger. Because this event, as hard as it is, and we will talk about it a lot more, we could have known, we couldn't have known. It cannot repeat itself, that's for sure. And we need to provide a very, very strong response to this matter. And on Thursday, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu met with U.S. Senator Lindsey Graham. Netanyahu told him that Israel is committed to achieving its goals in the war, and for that, they'll apply maximum power and precision everywhere that's needed. And Graham responded by saying, we have your back. Jason Perry, NTD News.
He's been called the CEO of Hamas. He once said it was an honor to provide funds to the terrorist group. Did he help enable the October 7th massacre? NTD's Virginia Gibson has more. Zahir Jabarin has been called the CEO of Hamas. He is reportedly the terrorist group's top financial officer. The Wall Street Journal cites U.S. and Israeli officials who say he was the key to funding the October 7th massacre. The principal way that he does it is through shell companies. And these shell companies are run mostly out of Turkey now because Turkey does not recognize all of Hamas to be a terrorist organization. And because of that, they allow him to operate within Turkey. He manages a network of companies. Those companies essentially are used to move money from Iranian entities uh, to Hamas. Middle East expert Gerard Filiti says Jabarin was driven to do this by a perverted view of Islam, combined with his identity as a Palestinian. Jabarin was born in 1968 in the West Bank, where Islam influenced him as a child. Sources say he became involved in violence against Israel at a young age. In a 2002 interview, he openly discussed Hamas's efforts to persuade children to become suicide bombers. His finance work is reportedly key to Hamas's survival. Hamas needs not just to procure weapons for attacks and to pay for supplies, but they also are essentially providing goods and services to the people in Gaza uh, who they claim to represent. So without money, money is the lifeblood of these organizations. Hamas would not function without it. Filetti says Jabarin has raised hundreds of millions for Hamas. He's a key reason Hamas exists. The U.S. has struggled to stop his ability to raise money. Jabarin himself denies his own involvement in fundraising, calling it an accusation and not a fact. Virginia Gibson, NTD News. President Biden releasing his first campaign ad of 2024, and former President Trump now facing another challenge to remove him from the ballot, this time in Illinois. NTD's White House correspondent Iris Tao has more. President Biden's campaign today released his first TV ad of 2024, trying to cast President Biden as a defender of democracy. While it did not directly mention Trump's name, it did include images showing the January 6th incident with Trump's flags in it. Let's take a look. There's an extremist movement that does not share the basic beliefs in our democracy. All of us are being asked right now, what will we do to maintain our democracy? President Biden has called Trump a threat to democracy and will that will make that theme of a speech to this Friday in Pennsylvania a day before the third anniversary of the January 6th incident. Meanwhile, former President Trump has also called Biden a threat to democracy and Trump is planned to hold rallies in Iowa this Saturday. And all this is unfolding as five people in Illinois today filed a formal objection trying to keep Trump off the ballot right there in that state. They again cited the 14th Amendment accusing Trump of ever participating in an insurrection disqualifying him from being the president. And Trump's team meanwhile has maintained that January 6 was not an insurrection and then Trump was not a part of any insurrection at all ever. Similar challenges meanwhile filed by voters themselves have failed in both Minnesota and Michigan. And when it comes to the Colorado Supreme Court ruling which has been playing out for the past two weeks, the action right now is on hold pending any action by the U.S. Supreme Court. So unless the high court acts by tomorrow, which is Friday, which is when the Colorado primary ballots are to be certified, we do expect to see Trump's name on the primary ballot in Colorado. Back to you. 
Presidential candidate Chris Christie publishing a new campaign ad saying he has an admission to make. Here's what he says about Trump. I have an admission to make. Eight years ago, when I decided to endorse Donald Trump for president, I did it because he was winning. And I did it because I thought I could make him a better candidate and a better president. Well, I was wrong. Christie strongly endorsed Trump in 2016. After dropping out of the race, the former governor defended Trump in various instances. He reportedly also tried to become Trump's running mate or attorney general. Now Christie tells voters he made a mistake and that they shouldn't vote for Trump. He says the former president would, quote, sell the soul of this country. Is Nikki Haley conceding defeat in Iowa? Less than two weeks before the Iowa caucuses, Haley downplays Iowa voters. She asked New Hampshire voters for help. Her comments come as former President Trump releases an ad criticizing her immigration policies. NTD's Arlene Richards has more on those stories, plus GOP candidate Ron DeSantis explains why he's not tougher on Trump. But also, what's with the Haley surge? When the going gets tough, the tough go to New Hampshire, and that's where GOP presidential candidate Nikki Haley is counting on voters to boost her standing in the race. Haley on Wednesday told a group of New Hampshire voters that she trusts them to correct the results of the Iowa caucuses. We have an opportunity to get this right, and I know we'll get it right, and I trust you. I trust every single one of you. You know how to do this. You know Iowa starts it. You know that you correct it. Her closest opponent, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, said in a social media post that Haley was insulting voters. Haley's remarks come less than two weeks from the January 15th Iowa caucuses and days before her CNN debate with DeSantis on January 10th. Former President Trump won't be joining the debate next week, but that's not stopping him from criticizing his opponents. In a new 30-second ad, Trump goes after Haley's immigration policies. He says her stance on immigration is similar to Joe Biden's. Yet Haley and Biden oppose Trump's border war. Yet Haley joined Biden in opposing Trump's visitor ban from terrorist nations. Haley's campaign said Trump was, quote, clearly terrified of her momentum in New Hampshire. And they refuted the ad's claim that Haley opposed Trump's border wall, citing a 2015 appearance at the National Press Club. Don't say you're just going to build a wall. Because a wall is not going to do it. You've got to have commitment of ground troops, equipment, money, all of that to bring it together. Her campaign also said Haley defended Trump's revised travel plan during her time as U.N. ambassador. In recent weeks, Haley and DeSantis both have been criticizing the former president. But some Iowa voters say DeSantis is too soft on Trump, and they want to know why. I've articulated all the differences time and time again on the campaign trail. I think what the media wants is, is they want Republican candidates to just kind of like smear him personally and kind of do that. That's just not how I roll. The Iowa voter wasn't satisfied with the governor's answer and said he worried that Trump was getting a free pass. Haley and DeSantis will hold back-to-back -back town halls on Thursday. Will they go after Trump or will they continue their fight for second place? Arlene Richards, NTD News. Foreign governments allegedly made payments to former President Trump's businesses. A new report says those businesses received millions of dollars while Trump was in office. 
Trump's hotels and properties allegedly received almost $8 million during his presidency. That's according to this new report released by House Democrats today titled White House for Sale. The report alleges that the money came from 20 different governments, but that most of it came from China. House Democrats on the Oversight Committee say the payments violate the Constitution's Foreign Emoluments Clause. It bars federal officials from accepting gifts from foreign countries without congressional approval. Republican Oversight Chairman James Comer responded to the report. He criticized Democrats for continuing their, quote, obsession with former President Trump. Even as Senate negotiators are trying to work out a bipartisan plan to deal with the border crisis, some Republicans are now trying to use leverage elsewhere to meet their demands. Some bluntly saying shut down the border or shut down the government. This as Congress is coming up on a fast approaching deadline to fund the government. Entity's congressional correspondent Melina Weiskup reports. We see a fierce showdown taking shape around funding the government. Up until this point, Ukraine aid has been the main source of leverage that House Republicans have used to make demands for border policy change. But now it's looking like keeping the lights on here in the U.S. government may be dependent upon changes at the border. Congressman Chip Roy of Texas leading the effort. Ranchers, local law enforcement, local leaders, and they all told me the same thing. Shut down the border or shut down the government. That's it. If they can't love our country and the citizens enough and respect our laws, then we need to cut off funding. We need to shut the government down. Lawmakers will return from their trip to Eagle Pass, Texas, here to Congress, facing a fast approaching January 19th deadline to fund the government to avoid a partial government shutdown. Republican House Speaker Mike Johnson has not directly endorsed the idea of shutting down the government in order to force border policy changes, but he has essentially said that their demands are the only way to directly and effectively address the issue at the border. H.R. 2 is the necessary ingredient. H.R. 2 is a bill that the Republican-led House passed several months ago. It would restart construction of the border wall, raise the bar for asylum claims, also return to a Trump-era policy known as Re Remain in Mexico, all proposals which Senate negotiators say are going nowhere fast. I can't get a Democratic Senate to be able to agree with that at all, and I can't get a White House to be able to agree with that. My understanding is that H.R. 2 doesn't have Democratic votes in the House or in the Senate. The White House says that the solution here is for Congress to give the DHS more money and resources to address the issue. However, Republicans are concerned that that money will only be used to quickly process more illegal immigrants and release them into the country rather than be used to stem the flow. This battle over border policy has once only stalled Ukraine aid, but now the entire U.S. government may be dependent on it. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskup, NTD News. New York City is now planning to sue bus companies for transporting illegal immigrants to the Big Apple. It's the latest development in an ongoing dispute between the state of Texas and Democrat-run cities across the U.S. Here's Mayor Eric Adams speaking on the lawsuit today. These companies have violated state law by not paying the cost of caring for these migrants, and that's why we are suing to recoup approximately $700 million already spent to care for migrants bust here in the last two years by the state of Texas. Texas has been sending illegal immigrants to New York, Chicago, and other sanctuary cities across the U.S. Adams today said New York City will continue doing in its part in supporting immigrants. 
but he added that the city can't bear the costs anymore. Adams says Abbott is trying to overwhelm New York's social services system, calling it a political ploy. Coming up, Jeffrey Epstein-related court documents and evidence unsealed with Prince Andrew and former President Bill Clinton back in the headlines. Jeremy Sandberg has more on the first unredacted release. With the Epstein documents out, there's renewed attention on the horrors of sex trafficking. Our guest gives us a deeper understanding of the scope of the problem in America. That and more after the break here on NTD News. Welcome back. Accused sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein is back in the news as hundreds of pages of unsealed documents from a lawsuit go public. This is the first set of documents to be unsealed under a December 18th court order, with more expected in the coming weeks. Just to be clear, being on the list does not indicate wrongdoing or law-breaking, and it also includes alleged victims. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg reports. Prince Andrew, former President Bill Clinton, and previously unknown individuals are named in the records released Wednesday in a case involving Jelaine Maxwell, a close friend of late financer and sex offender Jeffrey Epstein. Prosecutors in New York indicted Maxwell on sex trafficking charges involving multiple victims. She was convicted in 2021. The list stems from a 2015 defamation lawsuit filed against Maxwell by Virginia Gouffre, who accused Maxwell of abuse. The first batch includes around 40 unsealed court filings, featuring sealed depositions, emails, and other evidence. Appearing in these court documents doesn't necessarily imply wrongdoing, as Epstein circulated within some high-powered circles. But Goofrey alleged in her deposition that Maxwell directed her to have sexual contact with people, including former New Mexico Governor Bill Richardson, tech guru Marvin Minsky, French modeling scout Jean-Luc Brunel, and American investor Glenn Dubin. Prince Andrew was identified in the unsealed deposition of Johanna Schoberg, an already known alleged victim. Ms. Schoberg claimed during a deposition that Prince Andrew touched her breast while she was sitting in his lap for a photo. A court document filed by Goofrey's attorneys Tuesday says Andrew and Goofrey previously reached an out-of-court settlement in her sexual abuse lawsuit against him. Andrew has denied the allegations. The name of former President Bill Clinton, who is already known to be linked to Epstein, was featured in an email from Epstein to Maxwell in 2015. According to the unsealed filing, Epstein sent an email about Goofrey's lawsuit, suggesting offering a reward to Goofrey's friends and family that were willing to, quote, help prove her allegations are false. Clinton has not been accused of any crimes or wrongdoing related to Epstein. According to an unsealed filing, Goofrey tried to have Clinton deposed, but was denied by a federal judge. Goofrey made no accusations against Clinton, but her counsel considered him a key person who could disprove Maxwell's claims because of his close relationship with Maxwell and Epstein. Wednesday's court order states that more records will be disclosed on a rolling basis until completed. Court filings say 157 previously redacted names of those who knew and spent time with Epstein are expected to be disclosed. That includes alleged victims, prominent figures in the business and political worlds, employees, former associates, and journalists who investigated. The judge said a handful of names should remain redacted because they would identify people who were sexually abused. Goofrey's lawyer, Sigurd McCauley, reacted to the release, calling it a step further in the important goal of shutting down sex trafficking rings and holding more to account. But McCauley says there's still questions left unanswered about who enabled Epstein. She stated the public deserves to know how Epstein operated his vast, global sex trafficking enterprise and got away with it for decades. 
Maxwell is currently serving a 20-year prison sentence for helping Epstein sexually abuse minor girls for at least a decade. She is appealing her conviction. More documents are expected in the next few days. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Now that Jeffrey Epstein's court records are being unsealed, what is the significance and what still needs to happen? Joining us now to explore sex and human trafficking in the U.S. is Yucca Buens, an anti-sex trafficking advocate. Buens' own sister was a victim of sex trafficking. He helped to rescue her and has been involved in anti-sex trafficking advocacy ever since. That's over 20 years. Yucca Buens, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Thank you. Appreciate it. To begin, give us a sense of what the significance of the Jeffrey Epstein documents being unsealed is. Yeah, I think there's a lot to discuss with this particular set of documents. This is the eighth uh, uh, occurrence of documents being released. But we have to remember, these documents are only released because it was ordered by a judge as part of a defamation lawsuit settlement. So the documents are not being released to combat human trafficking. The documents are not necessarily released to to subpoena and prosecute. So the spirit of the release is wrong. Now we can use this information and we can go dig deep and hopefully subpoenas will happen. And there is some new information. But honestly, for the most part, there's not a single name that was mentioned that we did not know in 2007 or 2012 or 2019 with the Epstein arrest. So for us in the industry, the names are not new, but it is important that we do now see corroboration of saying, okay, yes, the names are official. And and I think probably the one of the most critical things that was released is a second witness that is saying, wait a minute, Bill Clinton was on the island. So I think that's a silver lining with the release so far for me that we can dig into these relationships and say, okay, let's let's continue to 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 investigate, and then hopefully subpoena, cross-examine, and prosecute. Expanding on that, on the note of prosecution, how do we get there? You mentioned subpoenas, but it seems it's not just the clients, right? How do we find out who the buyers are? How do we go about 100%. that? Hundred percent. That is the that is the only question we should be talking about, because we have a Jeffrey Epstein incarcerated, lost his life. Right. We have a Ghislaine Maxwell jailed and incarcerated under sex trafficking. Yet we've never seen a single buyer on a witness stand. Not one. That doesn't make sense. You can't say they trafficked human beings, but there are no buyers. There is no trafficking without buyers. It's a, it's a crime of supply and demand, and because the demand is so high, there was supply. And that's what the names should lead to. The FBI is sitting, they confiscated Epstein video. So the names that were just released were names that were given to the FBI predominantly from Maxwell, Maxwell's testimony, Maxwell's trial. Give us the information you had since 2012 on Epstein. Give us the Epstein flight logs. Let's let's cross corroborate those and let's see who's in the videos and take who's in the videos and, and cross collaborate that with the names that are on the flight logs. And then go after those people and say, now we're going to get you into the court of law. We're going to cross examine you to determine are you a buyer? 
Now, when it comes to sex trafficking, it's more than this high-profile case. You've mentioned on your podcast that many, many children are being targeted in America alone while this case unfolds. What should be done here? Yeah, and I, thank you for that question, because I think at this point, America, we focus so much on Epstein, you know, not really understanding what the climate of the crime is. It's a $152 billion industry selling women and children. It is arguably the number one societal problem in our country. And it touches everything else because crime begets crime. With sex trafficking comes debt bondage and debt labor and labor trafficking and money laundering and illegal you know, uh, contraband smuggling. It all, it all comes together. But it's proliferated our culture. The average buyer in the United States today, 2,000 cases, reported cases of human trafficking, sex trafficking specifically, that we have profiled over the last two years. The average buyer is a father of two who earns north of $100,000 a year. That means it's not who people think. It's in their neighborhood. It's in their church. It's in their schools. It's on every social media app. When I sit with people and I take a, a school auditorium full of kids, high schoolers, and I say, raise your hands if you've had this phrase asked of you in your DMs, right? And the hands go up. But I tell the principal before what that phrase means, right? They go pale. And I say, wait a minute, you want to tell me that 60% of the girls in our school have already been speaking to a predator on social media. They're being profiled. Yes, absolutely. Because predators take time, on average, nine months to desensitize and groom a child before they boldly make a move. This is not kidnapping. Kidnapping, trafficking and kidnapping in the U.S. is 1.7% of the crime. The rest 25 through 47% of trafficking in the U.S. across the 50 states, 25 to 47% is what's called familial trafficking. It means it's a familial figure to the child, most often a caregiver, a coach, a mom, a dad, an uncle, a trusted individual that at first exploited that child and introduces that child into the world of sex trafficking. So, so it's local. It should be personal to every American. And on that note, when it comes to the sex trafficking victims, given your own family history with this topic, how can they begin to get closure? Massive amount of healing, the right kind of healing. And we offer, look, on our website, helpjbm.org, we provide resources to families how to prevent it in their home how to spot and identify a, a potential trafficking victim or a child at risk. But most importantly, the child who has already now gone through abuse, that is a very, very long journey. It's the most difficult work. Rescuing a child is not easy, but the work starts, you know, and, and on average, it's a three to one. So if a child is, is trafficked for two years, it's going to take six years of restoration and therapy and, and really rebuilding a life. It's it's a tremendously difficult job to do. We're under-resourced in the country, particularly for minors. And so I encourage parents to be proactive. And, and we, you know, even the shirt I have on underneath says, save a child before they need rescue. Meaning 
let's identify the children that are at risk, like the predator is identifying the child that is at risk. Let us identify them, let us educate them, reinforce them so that they do not get trafficked. But for the ones who have been sexually exploited, sexual abuse, trafficking, rape, that's a rebuilding process that takes time and it takes particular resources. And, and we always need more resources, but we have substantial resources to offer to families uh, and they can reach out to us and we'll point them in the right direction in any of the 50 states. Jakob Buens, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate you very much. Thank you. Coming up, how much do you know about the Iowa caucus? Our guest explains how it works and why it's significant. From thefts and robberies to drug deals in broad daylight, D.C.'s Chinatown is seeing a surge in criminal activity. What impact does it have on local businesses and do people feel safe? Sam Wong reports. Protesters at California State Capitol disrupted the first session by demanding an immediate ceasefire to the war in Gaza. Lawmakers are trying to tackle the state's budget deficit. David Lamb has more after the break. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some today's top headlines. The ISIS-K terrorist group claimed responsibility for the deadly bombings in Iran. This is while tensions escalate between Israel and its northern neighbor, Lebanon. The Israeli military said they are in a very high state of readiness. A sixth-grade student was killed and five others were injured when a shooter opened fire at a high school in Iowa. The gunman was a student at the high school and died of self-inflicted gunshot wounds. The first batch of sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein's court documents were unsealed. The records named Prince Andrew, former President Bill Clinton, and previously unknown individuals. President Biden released his first campaign ad of 2024. Meanwhile, GOP candidate Nikki Haley told a group of New Hampshire voters that she trusts them to, quote, correct the results of the Iowa caucuses. It's just 11 more days before the Iowa caucus. Republican candidates are making last-minute efforts to appeal to voters. What should we know about the Iowa caucus and what are voters saying? Joining us now is Epic Times political reporter Lawrence Wilson. Lawrence Wilson, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. My pleasure. To begin, the Iowa caucuses is just around the corner. Now, what do we know so far about what voters are saying? Well, the voters that I've talked to in Iowa are talking about econo the economy, inflation, fuel prices. Remember, there are a lot of farmers in Iowa. They use a lot of diesel fuel. The cost of groceries and, of course, uh, the border uh, is a big issue there, too. I think the main thing they're saying is that they want change. They don't think things are going in a good direction right now with the country and they want a greater sense of stability and security and they're really hoping this election will bring that for them hmm. and on the flip side what about what candidates are doing any last minute efforts to try and win over voters oh my yes there are uh, they're spending a lot of time there and uh, doing what you do in Iowa. It's a very retail politics state. So they're pounding the pavement. They're out talking to people at 
campaign events. Uh, President Trump in particular is making a big effort to get people to come out to the caucuses. He has this uh, program of enlisting caucus captains and asking them to enlist 10 people to come with them to the caucus. So he's really trying to pack the caucuses with his people. Ron DeSantis is doing up to four events a day. That's a lot of travel crisscrossing the state back forth and up and down. Nikki Haley also doing a lot of that. Uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, I talked to his campaign last week and he's trailing quite a bit these other candidates, but he is finishing this week his second time of visiting all 99 counties in Iowa. So they're really out working it. I guess that's the short answer. Wow, does sound like it indeed. Now, every four years, each political party conducts a presidential preference poll. Tell us about that. What are those results for? Well, it's not an election. Uh, it's it's a poll. Remember, the caucuses in Iowa are held by each party. The Democrats have a caucus and the Republicans have their own caucuses. And it's a preference poll. And uh, surrogates will get up at these caucuses and speak on behalf of the candidates. Sometimes it's just a local resident who will be asked to speak in favor of their preferred candidate. Once in a while, the candidates themselves will attend the, a caucus. There are over 1,700 of them throughout Iowa. And then they vote on a blank piece of paper, just write down their choice. Now, the results are used in two ways. One is to allocate delegates to the county convention and then to the state convention and finally on up to the national convention. And so it serves a party purpose, but I think the bigger purpose for those caucus votes is that it gets the attention of the country to build momentum for a candidate or in some cases to kill the momentum that a candidate thought they had. I want to expand on that. So how are these caucuses different from what we think of in terms of primaries and why is Iowa so important? Yeah, caucuses and primaries differ in that a primary election is organized and put on by the state. Uh, so it's you go to your polling place, um, you cast a ballot and it's just like an election, but it's just for the candidates within a particular party. The caucuses are meetings and people go there and they do party business for their local precinct, for their county. And then every four years they take this presidential opinion poll. Now, the, the real importance of the Iowa caucuses is that Iowa comes first. It's just a quirk in the calendar that moved their caucuses to very early in the year. That happened back in 1968, and it was really in the mid-70s that people began to say, candidates began to say, hey, this is my chance to really get the attention of the whole country. So because Iowa is first, a good result there can really get the attention of a lot of people and boost a candidate's standing quite a bit, or in some cases, as I said, really halt them in their tracks. A lot to watch out for indeed here at Lawrence Wilson. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure.
As the rise in violent crime continues to haunt the nation's capital, D.C.'s Chinatown has been seeing fewer pedestrians. Compounding another blow to the neighborhood, two professional sports teams may soon move out of the landmark Capital One Arena to neighboring Virginia. NTD's Sam Wong has the details. This is Chinatown, a historic tourist destination located only about a mile away from Capitol Hill. For visitors, this area is becoming a go-to spot for sports games, museums, and some authentic, delicious Chinese cuisines. But to some residents, Chinatown is merely a reflection of the state of public safety in D.C., where rampant violent crime is becoming a regular phenomenon. From thefts and robberies to dealing drugs in broad daylight, a once-flourishing Chinatown is seeing a surge in criminal activity. According to D.C. police, in 2023, violent crime in the area was up a staggering 36 percent compared to the previous year. For Chinatown stakeholders, safety is their top priority, especially once they began seeing more panhandling and homelessness in the neighborhood. And since the COVID-19 pandemic, small businesses in Chinatown have been dealt a major blow as the area now sees fewer people walking by. And it's not just small businesses that are hurting. Monumental Sports recently announced its plans to move to Northern Virginia, relocating two major sports teams out of the landmark Capital One Arena. Some are wondering whether that's partially due to safety concerns. So do people feel safe when they come to see a game? NTD spoke with some of them, and here's what they said. It's about safety. These players need it the most. Definitely. You can see it's getting a little bit more dangerous around here. I grew up in New York City, so... This is a piece of cake. Every cop that works out here, they want to be out here serving their community. And if D.C. supports their law enforcement, they, you'll get quality out of it. To tackle the rise in violent crime, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser last October spearheaded legislation targeting retail theft and drug dealing. Reporting from Washington, D.C., Sam Wong, NTD News. Chanting and singing, protesters took over California's state capitol, disrupting the first session of the year. Lawmakers are also grappling with a historical $68 billion budget deficit. NTD's David Lamb reports. Over 1,000 protesters took over the California state capitol building on Wednesday, demanding an immediate ceasefire to the war in Gaza. The Assembly adjourned their first legislative session of the year, expected to tackle the state's budget deficit. Protesters chanted and sang, causing a lawmaker to acknowledge the right to protest, but said the legislature must be able to meet without distraction. Protesters went to the rotunda for several hours. Some said there were hundreds of Jewish people calling for an end to the war. Others suggested California taxpayers' money should not be used to fund foreign wars. The Israel-Hamas war in Gaza-Palestine began after Israel was attacked by Hamas terrorists October 7th. Following the terrorist attack, Israel responded in force. At the California capital, Highway Patrol responded to the scene, but no arrests were made. Protesters then walked to a nearby park, joining forces with another pro-Palestinian protest. Organizers said protests will continue until the end of the war. On the same day as the protests, Republican Assemblymember Bill Esaley introduced a bill to revoke all taxpayer funding for health care for illegal immigrants. California is grappling with a historic $67 billion budget deficit, while the U.S. faces a border crisis. He also pointed to, quote, historic inflation and the highest cost of living in the nation. David Lamb, NTD News, California.
Coming up, an NBA team draws a six-figure fine after giving their stars a day off. Dave Martin joins us to weigh in when we come back. Welcome back. Now for your sports news, we're joined by NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, the NFL's Pro Bowl selections came out yesterday with San Francisco having the most picks. Now, why are these announced with the regular season still ongoing? Tiff, that's like the best question you've ever asked me. I mean, I don't get that either. They can't wait one more week for the regular season to end. I mean, I'll grant that several star players are sitting out this week, which I'm not in favor of, but that's a whole different rant. If this happened in baseball, where like the MVP voting happened on the final game of the season, it wouldn't be that big of a deal because there's 162 games but there's only 17 games in the NFL so they're doing the voting with like six percent of the season still to play I mean look at some of the good players that got snubbed Brandon Ayak had more than 1300 receiving yards what if he had a monster game finishes third in receiving yards and he doesn't make the Pro Bowl what if Josh Allen passed for five touchdowns leads the Bills to a win over the Dolphins they win the division and he gets snubbed I just think this week's games just have the same value as the rest of them but that's just me on now moving on to baseball, Tampa Bay's Wander Franco has now been accused of multiple crimes by Dominican prosecutors following allegations he had a relationship with a minor. Given how serious these are, do you see him playing in the majors again? I mean, from a public relations perspective, this is very hard to come back from. And that's without an outcome to this case. I mean, look what happened to Trevor Bauer a couple years ago. He was accused of sexual assault by a woman in the spring of 2021. Baseball then placed him on administrative leave. The same they've done with Wander Franco. Um, now, despite the district attorney declining to file criminal charges, Major League Baseball handed down a suspension of more than a year after doing their own investigation. Now, Bauer and the woman both filed civil lawsuits against each other in 2022. They settled their cases about three months ago. Of course, the Dodgers had already long released him by that time. But Bauer, despite being a 32-year-old former Cy Young winner, is still unsigned. So a lot of damage has probably been done to Franco. He just hasn't seen it yet. Well, now shifting gears to tennis, Rafael Nadal has continued his comeback with a decisive win earlier today. Were you expecting this kind of performance from him so quickly? I mean, not this quickly. He beat Jason Kubler 6-1, 6-2. He's now in the quarterfinals of the Brisbane International. Now, I know it's not a major, but for a guy who just missed a year with an injury, he's yet to drop a set in two matches. He certainly passes the eye test here. Now, of course, the conversation is usually whether he'll play Novak Djokovic later this month in the Australian Open Finals. Those two have met more times than any other duo in history with 59. Djokovic actually has a slight advantage, 30 to 29 there. But Djokovic actually looks to be the more hampered of the two. He hurt his, he hurt his wrist while playing Wednesday. Now he says he has plenty of time to uh, get healed before the Australian Open starts on uh, January 14. It would be nice to see those two play against each other again, at least one, one last time in a major final, but we'll, we'll have to see. Well, now in basketball news, the NBA fined the Brooklyn Nets $100,000 for sitting out several healthy players last week. That's in a loss to Milwaukee. Why is the NBA worried about this? You know, when you're asking fans to pay hundreds of dollars uh, for tickets only to show up and find that some of the best players aren't even playing just because they're going to rest them, uh, it's disappointing. Imagine if both teams did that. I mean, who would really want to pay to see that? This had become very popular in recent seasons. It's called load management, where you pick some strategic games to rest your best players. Usually it happened on the second of a back-to-back -back where you're playing two games in a row. Now, interestingly, this got some publicity when Nets guard uh, Nicole Bridges actually complained in the media about having to get rest. I'm sure that put this whole thing on the NBA's radar, and uh, I'm guessing the Nets uh, probably won't be doing this again.
Well, Dave, as always, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Tiff. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.